You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. I want to thank both uh, Jonathan and Steve the past couple weeks for filling the, filling the pulpit. Really appreciate that, that break. Uh, Steve got us uh, going in chapter 5 last week, and, and we're going to continue to camp out here for a little bit longer. Um, Joshua chapter 5. So if, you're, um, if your Christian life does not require strength and courage, you're not living the Christian life. Because... God regularly calls you and me to do things that we can't do. I mean, in so many different ways. Uh, God, God has, for example, called us to, to preach the gospel. And the other day I found myself telling someone about Jesus, and that takes strength and courage beyond myself to do that. Uh, God has called some of you to do life in the, in the face of debilitating physical weakness where there are no answers for healing. That takes strength and courage to do that in a godly way. It takes strength and courage to confront and kill the sin in your life or to raise a difficult child in a way that honors God. It takes strength and courage when the culture is swimming in one direction to go the op- for you then to go the opposite way because that way is God's way. Uh, it takes strength and courage to ask for forgiveness or to extend it. Christian life is not easy, did not even Justin during his baptism allude to that, that in uh, sharing some of the difficulties and, and the hardships that, that come uh, as you are following Christ. The, the path between here and heaven is full of many obstacles and many difficulties. The Bible actually promises you that. It doesn't tell you anything different. Uh, Psalm 34, 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. John 16, says, in this world you will have trouble. Ephesians chapter 6 says that your true enemies are, are not other people or circumstances, but are invisible, dark, supernatural beings, the satanic powers and principalities that are bent on destroying your life, that are seeking to use all of the difficulties and trials of your life to utterly defeat you. And so, after hearing all that, if you're not a Christian, maybe I just talked you out of it. You may even wonder, why in the world then would I do this? Why would I become a Christian? The answer, because Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field that a man found, and in his joy he sells all that he has so he can buy that field to get that treasure. That's why you become a Christian, because the value of Jesus of having Him, of knowing Him, of enjoying Him, of being in right relationship with Him is so good that whatever loss you suffer in the process of getting Him is totally worth it. And to experience the peace and the joy and the satisfaction and the rest that is found in Jesus, He invites you to simply trust Him and follow Him. But in following Him, You will be taken down roads that will require strength and courage. You will have to take up your cross and follow Him. You will have to face sometimes obstacles that seem impossible to navigate. And to that I say, welcome to the Christian life. But the Scriptures tell us not to grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. 
Elsewhere, we're told that he who perseveres, he who endures to the end, will be saved. And the book of Joshua, one of the purposes of the book of Joshua uh, was, uh, to, is to help us to not give up. Uh, the, indeed, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 15.4 uh, that Joshua was written for your instruction that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures you might have hope. Joshua really is a book that teaches you how to get to heaven, how, how to walk the path that leads you to the land of peace and rest that God has promised believers on the other side of the grave. And if you do not have strength and courage, you will abandon the path and you will go an easier way, a safer way. It's exactly what the first generation of Israelites did. Uh, God had rescued them from the land of Egypt where they were slaves to Pharaoh. God promised to bring them into the land of Canaan, a good land, an abundant land, a prosperous land where He would give them peace and rest and fellowship with Him. And all they had to do to enter into that land was to trust Him and to follow Him. But when God brings them to the edge of Canaan, the people would not trust God. And their strength and their courage failed because they deemed the path to be too hard, too scary, too uncomfortable. Their enemies in Canaan were too big and too strong. Their fortified cities and walls were too powerful. And in the end, they thought that it would be better for them to go back in Egypt and sell themselves back into into the slavery that they came from. And because the people refused to receive God's gift of the promised land, God refused the people entry into that land, cutting them off from all of the good blessings that they would have enjoyed if they would have but continued forward in faith and not given up. Indeed, from the moment they left Egypt, they consistently doubted God, and they lived in fear and panic, uh, afraid that He would not protect them and provide for them and do right by them. And, and for their unbelief, the people were sentenced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that rebellious generation of Israelites died out. And so, you fast forward now 40 years to the book of Joshua, and we meet this second generation, this new generation of Israelites, God now brings them to the edge of the land. And in Joshua chapter 1, we read of the charge to be strong and courageous. And we saw this charge not once, not twice, but three times, uh, because it was a lack of strength and courage that brought disaster upon that first generation of Israelites. In chapters 2 and 3, Joshua sent spies into Canaan who report that the first enemy city they would face, Jericho, is ripe for the taking. In chapter 4, through an incredible miracle, God parts the waters of a massive raging river that was standing between them and the land, and He brings them safely through that on to the other side. And after all of this, you can imagine uh, the, the morale of the people of God, it must be at an all-time high while the confidence of their enemies is at an all-time low. The time seems ripe to get down to business and to attack. And so, you would think, at this point, chapter 5 would begin with Joshua yelling, Charge! And they would run towards Jericho with swords held high to overthrow it. And instead, God has the people do something very counterintuitive. He does not have them turn the sword to the armies of Jericho. He instead has them take the sword upon themselves in an act of circumcision. And then he tells them, he has them have a party, uh, have a feast. Very unusual. 
And yet what God is doing for Israel in this chapter is reversing the mistakes of their forefathers, and He is teaching them lessons about strength and courage to prepare them as God leads them on the path into the promised land. And we'll find lessons here for ourselves as well this morning, since this is all, has all been written for our instruction that through endurance and, and the encouragement of these Scriptures, we might have hope. So, with that said, let's stand now together out of honor and reverence for the reading of the precious and perfect words of our great God. This is Joshua chapter 5. Hear the word of the Lord. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted. And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at uh, Gebeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all of the people who had come out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom... He raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcision, circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While all the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And in the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year." When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am a commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning you would speak through your holy and inspired word and that we would have ears to hear and a heart to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So this morning, I want to focus on three lessons, three messages I believe God was speaking to Israel so that they might have strength and courage for the path that God had called them to so that they would not give up. And and I think the first thing that, that God is saying to Israel is, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Verse 2 says, 
At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Now, again, this is a strange military tactic. They have crossed the river. They are close to the enemy. And you'd think the goal now would be for Joshua to strengthen the army, to get their gear ready, to go through some drills, to study some military tactics, or at least maybe do some push-ups, get ready for this thing. Instead, Joshua has them do something that seems to actually weaken the army. Uh, All of these fighting men are to undergo the surgery of circumcision which would leave the entire camp vulnerable for days while everyone healed. And you can imagine how disastrous things could be if right after this mass circumcision, the camp was overrun with Canaanite warriors from Jericho. That would be ugly. And yet God tells Joshua to have them all circumcised. Why? Because circumcision was a sign of God's covenant, God's promise made to Israel's forefather, Abraham, that Israel would indeed possess the land of Canaan and and that the whole world would be blessed through Abraham's offspring. And because blessing would come through the offspring of Abraham, all of Abraham's offspring, every Hebrew baby boy would receive the sign of the covenant on the male reproductive organ as a constant reminder of what God had promised. Circumcision, then, was an identity marker. It was a way of identifying yourself as one of God's people who is trusting in God's promise, that that you were in a special relationship with God. Indeed, uh, if you know the story of the Exodus, when Israel was slaves in Egypt, God did not just say to Pharaoh, let my people go. He said, Israel is my firstborn son, let him go. So God had adopted Israel and become their father, but something happened during Israel's wilderness journeys. We, we learn in verses 4 through 6 that the generation of Israel that came out of Egypt, they were circumcised, but they didn't continue the practice of circumcision with their children. Look at verse 6, for the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. Though God had adopted the nation, they consistently disobeyed. They never embraced their sonship. If Israel really was the son of God, then of course God as their father would care for them and help them and provide for their every need, but they doubted. In fact, there was one time in Exodus chapter 17 when they were freaking out and panicking that God would not provide for them water in the desert they tested God. They, they pushed and provoked God by having the audacity to say, is the Lord among us or not? And that episode strikes at the heart of the problem and why they were always disobedient and why they were always afraid, because they doubted that God was really for them, that His presence was really with them, and that He would really take care of them. They did not embrace their identity as sons in a and a relationship with a good father. And without an identity that is rooted in God, guess what? You won't obey God. There is a connection between your identity, your sense of identity, and how you live. For example, if you read Exodus 19 through 20, you don't have to turn there, but in Exodus 19 and 20, God gives, is, is going to give Israel the law, the Ten Commandments. And if you read that section carefully, you'll recognize that the rules that God gives them are rooted in something 
deeper than mere arbitrary do's and don'ts. Instead, the law that God gives them is connected to their identity. After God delivers the Israelite slaves from Egypt, He takes them to Mount Sinai, and He gives them the law. But before He gives them the law, He says this to them in Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now, therefore, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples, and you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." The reason why God redeemed Israel was not so Israel could be autonomous and do their own thing. Freedom did not mean maximum freedom apart from anybody or anything else. It did not mean autonomy. Instead, God says to Israel, you were once a part of Pharaoh's household, now you are a part of my family. You once worked for Pharaoh and his glory. Now you work for me and my glory. You are a kingdom of priests. You are my sons. You are my representatives in the world. And your very lifestyle will be fulfilling my purpose for you to be a light to the nations and point them to God and His salvation. And yet they don't lay hold of this truth. And guess what? Their lives follow suit. If you don't think you're, you are if you don't think you're children of a faithful God, then you, you aren't going to live like it. And so they lost the vision of who they really were. And when they rejected circumcision, they, they rejected their identity. And it's interesting because even though God said that their children would enter, enter the land, they refused to give their children the mark of the covenant. They gave up on the promise even for their children. And in rejecting their identity as God's people, they threw away their strength and their courage, and in the end, they succumbed to weakness and fear, and they did not endure to the end. And it tragically led to their bodies falling in the wilderness outside the land of promise. And so now God tells this new generation to do what their fathers would not do for them, as if to say, if you were to succeed where your fathers failed, if you are to move forward into the land with strength and courage, the first step is for you to remember who you really are. Remember that you can't win your battles because you have bigger muscles than the Canaanites, or that you're better swordsmen, or you have a better strategy. Instead, your success in fulfilling the things that God has called you to do is found in the fact that you are the people of God, sons of the promise and sons of a God that is always faithful. And if this new generation can really lay hold of that vision and believe that, they will be able to, with strength and courage, face any challenge, any obstacle, any foe without fear. And so, identity matters. And so, the question for you this morning is, who do you think you are? Whatever your identity is rooted in will be the dominant and controlling factor of your life. If you see yourself primarily as a mom, if, that, that, if that's at the core of your identity, that, that's going to affect some things about how you live and what's valuable to you and what, and what you spend your time doing. If you, if you see yourself primarily at your core a, a husband or a wife, that's going to govern your choices. If your identity is bound up in your job, in your career, that's going to affect how you live. 
And, and, and I, can, I can show you the, the wreckage of a thousand families to prove that. If you see your identity is mainly connected with your sexual orientation or your race, that's, that's going to control your lifestyle choices. If you're wrapped up in politics and see yourself primarily as a Republican or a Democrat, I guarantee you that's going to affect your choices. If you see your identity as an accidental animal that descended from apes and amoebas billions of years ago, I promise you that's going to have an effect on how you live. But if you see yourself primarily first and foremost, as a son of God who is faithful, a daughter of God, who, of a God who keeps His promises, if you see yourself as someone whose number one purpose in life is to glorify and enjoy God and, and to be a light to the nations, to show them the salvation of God, folks, that changes everything about your life. It changes how you parent. It changes how you manage and spend your money, how you treat your friends, how you treat your enemies, how you view your sexuality how you engage in the political arena, all of those things become subservient to your ultimate identity. And so, if you are here this morning as a Christian, then remember who you are. The Apostle Peter takes that Old Testament language that God was using for Israel, and he expands its application to you, to all who believe, whether Jew or Gentile, and he says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's who you are. That, that's your identity. That's why you exist. You don't exist for yourself. You exist for God. You exist to proclaim God to the world through your lips and your life so that others may be called out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Now, if you struggle in the area of identity, and I think many people do, even though they don't know it, I think in the Bible, the book of Ephesians in the New Testament is a great place to, to begin and uh, to learn about the, the true identity of a Christian. If you read Ephesians, you'll see that in the first three chapters, Paul reveals the identity, who a Christian really is. Uh, if you're a believer, for example, he says that you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. He says that God in love predestined you for adoption. He says that in Christ, you have redemption. He says that you are his workmanship created in Christ for good works. He tells you that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And on and on, the book of Ephesians goes with these rich descriptions of who you really are. And then when you get to the last three chapters of Ephesians, Paul shows you how the truth of your identity fleshes itself out practically in day-to-day -day life, which is why he says in um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, what he's saying is, in light of all of these glorious truths about your identity, live according to who you really are. Be who you are. Live it out. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes, be imitators of God as beloved children. Paul, Paul makes the connection between our identity and, and how we live in the world. The, and the idea in Ephesians 5.1 is that even in human relationships, if you, if you have a little child observing his father, he'll begin to do the things that his father does. Uh, maybe if you have kids, you've seen this. 
Uh, your child may repeat your words. That can be scary. Repeating your, your mannerisms. Sometimes I've seen kids even repeat just like facial expressions, mimicking these things. That always used to terrify me when my, my kids were little because sometimes I behaved in a way that I did not want repeated by them. But that, that's just what you do, right? That's what kids do. That's my daddy. I live like my daddy. I do what my father does. And so the scripture here, when, when he says, be imitators of God as beloved children, is playing on that idea that, that if you, you're really the children of God and you're really embracing that and living according to your identity, then, then you're going to take on the mannerisms and characteristics of your father. Your life will flow from how you see yourself, your identity. And then the book of Ephesians ends with demonstrations of how you view your identity, uh, uh, of how that affects and transforms all of your relationships, your relationships with other people, your marriage, your family, those you work for and those who work for you, and your identity even affects your relationship with the spirit realm, with the satanic powers that are seeking to destroy you, because identity matters. The Bible is constantly telling you to remember, remember, remember who you really are. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. And notice there in Romans 8, the connection between fear and identity. There is a spirit of slavery that leads to fear, where you are constantly anxious and and worried and you lack peace, and and that's contrasted with a spirit of sonship which drives out fear. There, There is no greater peace that you can experience than to know that you are a child of God, because if the most powerful and loving being in the universe is your father then whom or what shall you fear? If all that's true, then, then you can do then anything that he's called you to do. You can face any challenge that the path of faith brings in front of you because identity matters. So remember who you are. And, and just as God gave Israel a visible graphic symbol to remind them of, of who they were and to encourage them in their identity, which was circumcision, he gives believers today, male and female, a visible sign, which is Baptism, which we just witnessed earlier in the service. When Justin went through the waters, it was a powerful outward declaration of an internal spiritual reality that he has been united with Jesus in death and burial and resurrection and is a child of God, a new creation with a new identity. And, and, and God is God is so wise. God knows that we need symbols like this. We need things that are tangible, that, 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 we, can, that we can see and, and our senses can, can interact with to help our hearts and to encourage us and to, to teach us truths. And, and Justin, in those times when you feel weak, uh, when you're struggling in your faith, brother, I, I want you to look back to this moment, this day, this baptism to remind you of the great things that God has done for you, to remind you of who you really are in Christ. Remember who you are. That's the first message. Second message God has for us is closely linked to the first. He he says, remember who you are, but, but even more specifically, remember your salvation. Verse 10, 
While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month and the evening on the plains of Jericho. So again, we've got strange battle tactics. They aren't charging to war. They're celebrating a holiday, a holy day, the Passover, which was a commemoration of that great act of redemption that God brought about 40 years ago when the Lord with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm overthrew the might of Pharaoh in Egypt and rescued their people from brutal slavery. You know, God had warned Pharaoh about what was coming. He said, Israel is my firstborn son, and if you don't let him go, I will take your firstborn. And on that first Passover night, God would send his angel to strike down the Egyptians, the the firstborn son of every family. Death would come to every household in Egypt because, the Bible says, the wages of sin, the penalty for our treasonous rebellion against God is death. And God tells Israel that even, uh, even to your households, death must come, but I will provide for you a way of escape. Death must come, but it doesn't have to fall on you as long as there's a substitute. And so God has the children of Israel take lambs, and in every household have a lamb sacrificed at twilight, putting the, the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the home. So when the angel of death came to that house, he would see the blood and know that the judgment of death has already come. And so he would pass over that home, leaving believing Israelites safe, while at the same time completely overthrowing the power and might of Egypt. That was the final blow that brought Pharaoh to his knees and caused him to finally release Israel from bondage. And so now, before the people invade Canaan, God has this second generation of Israelites, not far from the enemy city, celebrate that great moment. And and when does this happen? Look again at verse 10. On the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. Friends, do you know that the evening of the 14th day of the first month puts this moment exactly, exactly 40 years after that first Passover down to the hour, the lambs being slain at twilight. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what a glorious night that would have been? After 40 years of struggle, after 40 years of difficulty, after that seemingly impossible barrier of the Jordan River, and now here they are at last in the, in the land. I can imagine that night, like if I was making the movie, this is what I would do. I can imagine spies from Jericho scouting out the scene. And what do they see? They see endless campfires and torches dotting the plains and the smell of roasted lamb rising, and hymns of praise being sung, a worship service with a congregation numbering in the hundreds of thousands. And God providentially orchestrates this great moment to help them to remember the faithful God of their salvation. That's the purpose of the Passover, to encourage and strengthen the people, uh, to, to remind them that the past, the past faithfulness of God would point forward to the certainty of of the fulfillment of God's future promises to them. That God saved them from the most powerful empire on the planet. Egypt was the world's superpower at that time. Be like him overthrowing America, which he could do just like that. 
that God saved them from the most powerful empire on the planet is proof that God is indeed with them and will not leave and forsake any who put their hope in Him. And as the Passover was a celebration, a, a graphic, tangible uh, symbol that, that affected their, their, their senses and they could see and smell and interact with, as the Passover was a celebration to remind Israel that the God who powerfully delivered them in the past would fulfill all of His future promises, so God has given us a commemorative meal, a means of grace to strengthen and encourage our hearts to give us help and give us hope where, where uh, centuries after that first Passover, the Lord Jesus Christ comes, and He has a final Passover meal with His disciples, and He takes that Passover meal, and He transforms it into what we today call communion, or the Lord's Supper. And He says that as you consume that bread and drink that wine, it points to my flesh and my blood, which is going to be crucified and poured out for your salvation. And the very next day, Jesus is nailed to a cross as the perfect Passover lamb, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world and the death judgment that you and I deserve, passing over us and being placed on Him as our substitute. And, and all who put their hope in Him will experience forgiveness and eternal life. And if you're here this morning as an unbeliever, I want to say uh, this is your only hope. This is your only hope for life. This is your only hope for salvation. This is your only hope to actually be connected to God. So receive the gift of salvation in Christ before it's too late. Turn from your sins and turn to Him. And for all those who have received Christ, Jesus then says, take this meal and do this in remembrance of me. But Jesus doesn't just say this meal is a look back. He, he says, you also need to look forward. He says, I won't drink of this fruit of the vine with you anymore until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. Which means that like Israel in the plains of Jericho, we who believe today, though we have experienced that great initial act of salvation, where the wrath of God has passed over us, we still, we here today, we still look forward to the full consummation of every promise that God has made to us. We, we, we look forward to the return of Jesus, who will come and eradicate the world from all evil and right all wrongs and make all things new, and will bring, into, bring us all into a good and abundant and peaceful land, the new heavens and the new earth, where at last we can have rest. And so, as with Israel, we take this meal, and we do it about every month here at Harbin's, we take this meal not only in remembrance, but with anticipation, eager, hopeful anticipation for the future. And it gives us strength and courage and hope as we walk the hard path between here and our promised land. So remember who you are, remember your salvation, but there's one more thing, there's one final preparatory moment that is needed, one more thing for the people of God to remember, and that is to remember His presence. Present, uh, Preston, do we have that on the, uh, in our slides? Remember His presence? I didn't see that. Oh, there it is right there. Thank you. Remember His presence. In verse 13, presumably as all of the festivities are winding down, <clears throat> and as the fighting men are close to being healed from circumcision, and the time for war is at hand, we find Joshua by Jericho, and he's alone, and presumably he, he's there scouting it out. He's doing a little reconnaissance, 
Perhaps he is from a distance looking intently at that mighty imposing wall. Perhaps in the moonlight he can see the glint of spear points from the armed guards patrolling the walls. Again, if I was filming the movie, that's how I'd have it. And suddenly Joshua sees someone, something, someone, that is probably a bit startling and unexpected. Text says that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua approaches him, probably with his hand on his own sword, ready to throw down. And he asked, are you for us? Are you for our adversaries? It's a reasonable question. It's a time of war. You see somebody and they are armed and their weapon is out. And I love this visitor's answer. The man says, no. (laughs) But then he quickly adds, I'm a commander of the army of the Lord. I'm not a Canaanite. I'm not an Israelite. I lead a different army. I have not come to take sides as much as I have come to take charge. And suddenly, Joshua is shocked, and he realizes this warrior is no ordinary person. There is some debates on the specifics of who this is. Some say it's perhaps an angel representing God, but I'm not so sure about that. Look what happens next. text says that Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. And said to him, what does my Lord say to his servants? Now, it could be that Joshua sees an angel and doesn't worship him, but worships the God that he represents. That's possible, I suppose. And it could be that Joshua's use of the term, my Lord, Adonai in the Hebrew, can be a term simply of of deep respect. But, while I don't want to be dogmatic about it, what happens next kind of pushes me to the other side of this debate. Verse 15, and the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Does that ring any bells? Does that sound familiar? Who was the last person to speak those words? It was the Lord. It was was God Himself who spoke to Moses at the burning bush to commission Moses to deliver Israel from Egypt. Uh, There is only one person whose very presence can make the dust of the earth holy. And so we come again to another full circle moment as Joshua comes into his own as the successor of Moses. He's giving Joshua the same experience he gave Moses, appearing to him in visible form to assure Joshua of his presence. Again, back up in verse 14, notice, notice what the commander says. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. I love that. I love that. God has saved the best for last in these preparations for battle. It is good that Israel has embraced their identity and recommitted themselves through circumcision. It is good that through the Passover they are given a reminder of the past to give them assurance of the future. But God's personal arrival on the scene is a way of telling Joshua that I'm here now. In the presence, he's assuring Joshua that God is with him by by giving Joshua a personal, visible manifestation of himself, arrayed for battle, commander of the heavenly hosts, showing Joshua that he is fulfilling the great promise that he made in chapter 1. Do you remember the promise that God made in chapter 1? God said to Joshua, as I was with Moses, so shall I be with you. So be strong, 
be courageous. Do not be frightened, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua, as he lies flat on his face before God, he knows now more than ever that as he leads Israel into battle, he's not doing it alone, and he's not the ultimate leader. And ultimately, it is not up to him and his strength and his ability. There is another army going before them, led by Yahweh, the divine, invincible, unstoppable warrior king. In fact, he has already gone before them, as we read in verse 1 of the fear and the terror that God has struck the Canaanites and the Amorites with. And we should notice, by the way, the irony as we consider the, the, the fear, the trembling fear of the enemies of God. Uh, remember, that first generation of Israelites, they were, the, they were so paralyzed by fear, they forgot who they were, they forgot their salvation, they forgot that God was with them, and they were so afraid of the Amorites and the Canaanite hordes. But we, we see here in verse 1 that God is greater than the thing that they were so afraid of and that they had nothing to fear all along. And that, by the way, that's a reminder to us. If you're here this morning and, and you constantly battle fear and you constantly battle anxiety, and I, I think many of you in this room do, so often the thing that you are afraid of is but a phantom. It is not rooted in reality, and God is always, 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 always greater than the thing that you fear. David wrote, in his psalm, that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because I'm so strong and I'm so awesome? No. He said, I will fear no evil. Why? Because why? You are… you're allowed to do this. You're with me. You are with me. I know we're like one of these mellow, low-key Baptist churches, but every once in a while you can get all interactive and, and do that. And if somebody even says amen, that's allowed. Now, now, can you and I have that same assurance? Does God promise to be with you as with Joshua? Should you be on the lookout for a divine visitation? Actually, God doesn't promise you occasional divine visible manifestations. Uh, those sorts of things in the Bible are rare. <laughs> but on the other hand, you have been promised something much better or, or, or maybe I should say, you've been promised someone much better. As a believer, you have the promise of the divine presence of the Holy Spirit. We talked about the Spirit yesterday in Theology Reading Group. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, the Spirit dwells in you. He takes up residence in you and therefore is with you all the time, no matter what you face, no matter what, no matter what you're going through, no matter where you go, He is by your side. The author of the book of Hebrews, and, and by the way, I do think that, that God's promise to Joshua, I'll be with you wherever you go, uh, I, I, think, I do think that's applicable to us <clears throat> today. And I know that because that's just, the Bible tells me that. Uh, the author of the book of Hebrews, seeking to assure believers, seeking to assure you of God's constant presence with you, actually quotes God's promise to Joshua, and he applies it to you. He writes to you in Hebrews, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can say confidently that the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, when you 
when you think about that, and when you really lay hold of that, and when you really believe that God is with you in that way, folks, it is absolutely, absolutely life-changing and liberating. There are things that are coming up this week that some of you are dreading, absolutely dreading. Difficulty on the job, another week of painful health struggles, an uncertain future, financial difficulties, tension in your family relationships. Maybe there's some tough confrontations coming up. God has called you to all kinds of different things, trials of various kinds, as the book of James said. But the Scriptures are telling you, nevertheless, that, as I heard someone put it this way once, there is nowhere you can go, no emotion you can feel, no experience you can have where God has not promised to stand with you no matter what. So, yes, the psalmist does say, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but you got to keep reading. Then he says, the Lord will deliver him from them all. And yes, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but you got to keep reading. He says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And yes, it is true that the hellish satanic powers are bending all of their uh, maleficent schemes and fury towards you, but Jesus says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. If you have been saved by God, adopted into his family, and you belong to him, then you have the exact same assurance that David wrote about in Psalm chapter 16, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. A few years ago, Dana, a God had called Dana and me into a, a very difficult experience where he sent us to serve a church on a little tiny island in Alaska. And I'll be honest, I was scared to go. I was chicken. It was going to be a, a drastic change. We were going to leave behind this wonderful church with so many wonderful friends. Uh, many of my preferences and comforts would be stripped away. Uh, in fact, I was told going into this that there, this would be like going into the mission field. I, I was told that by a missionary. Uh, now, now, certainly this was not like planning a church in Saudi Arabia, for sure. But for someone like me, uh, the changes were significant and daunting. But as I was struggling through that, I felt like the Lord was challenging me on something particular in my life. I preach so often that if you lose everything, but you still have God, that you have more than enough. And I felt like I had spent years talking a good game about that. But did I really believe it? And that conviction in my heart was one of the things that propelled me forward to, to take this step of faith and serve that church. And Now, I assure you, by the grace of God, I didn't lose everything in going to Alaska. Some of you outdoorsmen would think that was a great gain. But I did lose some things, and there was some pain involved. And while the Lord brought some wonderful brothers and sisters across our path up there, and, and that church in place will always have a special place in my heart, it was tough, it was hard, and it was lonely. Uh, the tears that my 12-year-old Ethan was shedding as we were driving away from Atlanta uh, was a mirror of the sorrow in my own soul. That first Christmas away from Harbin's was like a dagger in our hearts. But I will tell you this, there was one constant. 
there was one thing that got me through all of that and through all the challenges that we faced in Alaska and through all the extremely difficult ministry situations and, and trials that God had, had brought us through, uh, 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 there was one thing that kept me going and it was the assurance and the experience of God's constant presence. That was the thing that sustained me through three of the most challenging ministry experiences, uh, three of the most challenging years of ministry experience in my life. And, and I learned firsthand that God would never leave or forsake me as he empowered me to do things and serve in a way that I never thought that I could. And, and, and that I could have courage and strength facing the future because he was by my side, even, even living within me. And, and so, brothers and sisters, God has not just saved you, and he has not just given you a new identity. He actually has given you the very best thing of all, himself through the Spirit that is now in you. And because of the Spirit that is in you, you can know, as Joshua learned, that in him you have all the resources you need, all the resources you need to successfully and faithfully make it through all the things that he has called you to face in the next six hours, and tomorrow, and for this week, and whatever else he may have for you in the next year and for life. Because if God be for us, if God be with us, uh, God, who is bending all of His beneficent purposes and powers towards us, if that God be for us, who can be against us? Because He is at our right hand, we will never be shaken. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that there was something helpful and useful and beneficial that was shared today. Well, I know the things for sure that were helpful and powerful and beneficial. It was those times I was quoting directly from the Bible. <clears throat> but I pray that whatever aspects of Scripture that I have rightly interpreted and applied, that you, Father, that you, Spirit, would apply those things to our hearts this morning and that it may impact our lives starting right now. Father, I, I pray that you would help us to, we who believe, I, help, I pray that you'd help us to remember who we really are. We are sons and daughters of the king of the cosmos. And since you are at our right hand, we will never be shaken. We will face trials and we will face fire and we will face much difficulty, but ultimately we will not be ruined. We will not be overwhelmed and destroyed because you are with us. <clears throat> Father, help us to never take for granted our great salvation and help us to remember every day to preach the gospel to ourselves and every day to remember the mighty acts that you have done for us through the cross, through the death, through the burial, through the resurrection, through the ascension of Jesus Christ. And let that be a reminder that if you accomplish that great thing for us, then we can have confidence in facing the future that you will provide for us every other thing that we need between here and heaven to help us, to make, a, to help us make it safely home. And help us to have an assurance of your presence, even now. And Father, even during those times, maybe where we don't <clears throat> feel your presence, because those things happen, those, those seasons come, Help us, Father, to live not according to how we feel, but according to what we know. Help us with those things. 
Help us to remember our need for you and that you will always supply our every need. In Jesus' name, amen.